Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike, I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world. People who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Welcome back to the Adaptify podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Have you checked out Adaptify.com yet? You can see all the previous Adaptifier guests that I've interviewed and their stories and links to their social media pages and key information. You can also learn more about the Lap Stacker, which is the world's first retractable strap system for wheelchair users. Essentially, it prevents items falling off the lap of a wheelchair user while they're moving. You can also check out the merchandise that's now up and available, caps, tote bags, and t-shirts. Be sure to check it out at Adaptify.com. Today's guest is Elena Nichols, and Elena is prolific. She is a multi-award winning uh, Paralympic athlete, not only in one sport, but in multiple. Alpine skiing, basketball, uh, kayaking. She's now also on her way to becoming the world's best female adaptive surfer. Phenomenal amount that Elena's now been able to pack into her life since becoming a paraplegic. She's also, at time of this interview, seven months pregnant, and that is going to be really interesting to talk to you, Elena, about your journey with that so far. You're a high-profile sponsored athlete and speaker, and with you know so much insight into what it takes to not only be an athlete, but live a great life as a paraplegic. Elena, welcome to the show. It's so very good to have you here. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we could finally connect. Yeah, excellent. So, look, you're you're a super busy, uh, super busy person, and uh, congratulations, by the way, on your your pregnancy. How many how many months through are you now? Thank you. Yeah, we're seven months uh, in the home stretch, third trimester. Wow, we okay. Well, I'm really keen to talk a bit more about your experience with that as a as a wheelchair user um, a bit later on. But to give our audience some context, uh, tell us a little bit about about yourself um, prior to joining this adaptive community, and you know, just briefly how how you ended up uh, becoming a wheelchair user. I like how you stated that question. So I was born and raised in Farmington, New Mexico, little town in the northwest corner of the state. I started playing sports when I was five, was a three-sport athlete most of my life, and then my senior year in high school, uh, while I was on track for a softball scholarship to head on to college, I actually broke my back in a snowboarding accident. Um, being a risk taker, I basically you know, was seven, 17 and 10 foot tall. Mm-hmm. decided to try my first backflip on a snowboard and uh, over-rotated the backflip and landed on what I later learned was a boulder underneath the snow. So, oh, uh, got yeah, broke my back in three places, did a good job doing it too. It was pretty destroyed. So from there, where, where, where did you go for your rehab and, and what was that experience like? You know, I really wanted to go to Craig Hospital, which is one of the more well-known spinal cord injury facilities in the U.S., Uh, but they did not have a bed available. So I did my rehabilitation with no one under 75 in a 
in a local hospital in my hometown. Um, wow. Yeah, I was the youngest person there by far, and the PTs and OTs didn't really know what to do with me. <laughs> so luckily, my injury was not that involved in terms of, you know, subsequent injuries like car accident stuff. Mm. I basically was paralyzed at the T12 level incomplete. So I got function back down to my knees mm. and uh, was able to kind of just knock it out. You know, I they told me to sit up. I did, you know, transfer from the bed to the chair. Okay. You know, all the things. And then that's really, that's really the extent of it. I, you know, it was, it was much more involved, obviously learning how to use the bathroom and things like that was difficult. But after learning a lot about other folks in the adaptive community and their experience in rehab, I think mine was pretty straightforward. Yeah, for sure. What, what would you say was one of the, the darkest moments for you at that point? And, and how did you get through that? You know, my dark moments didn't actually happen until about, well, I would say there was a dark, really dark spot when I had to go home for the first time. You know, everybody in the hospital is kind of cheerleading for you. You're sort of hopeful. You're thinking about getting a lot of function back. You're working really hard. Everything's accessible in the hospital. And then you go home and nothing's accessible. You don't have any cheerleaders. You realize very suddenly that you are so different because you're so used to the environment of being home as an able-bodied person, then you go home in a wheelchair and everything's just like slapping you in the face, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's a whole new world that sort of opens up, isn't it? And, and did yeah. you know anybody who, you know, had a spinal cord injury or, or who had a severe disability before your accident? No, I didn't. I'm honestly in my hometown, I, I can count on one hand how many wheelchair users there are to this day, you know? So what was your perception of, of life with a broken back? What did you think that would mean for you? You know, that kind of leads to my other dark moment. I, I really believed I was going to walk again for uh, a long period of time. Like the doctor told me whatever I got back within the first two years post-injury, uh, I would have for the rest of my life. So to me at 17, that meant, okay. I'll do everything in my power to get back to walking and then I'll be fine. So for the following two years, I mean, I was in my chair, but I wasn't really accepting what was happening mm -hmm. until I was, I think it was my end of my first year in college. Um, everything just hit, you know, when that two year mark came around and nothing had really changed with my spinal cord injury, that's when things really hit me hard. And, and I realized that this was my new normal and like, it sucked. I was, I was really mad about it. And, you know, being at, at that stage in my life, you know, going off to college is like when you're starting your next new chapter anything's possible, you know, you're meeting all these new people and going to all the parties, et cetera, you know, in college. And none of that was happening for me. And I was very recluse. I stayed home. I didn't want to be seen. And really depression kind of sunk in um, at that point. And it's kind of perfectly timed in my life. I call it a God moment when I found out about wheelchair basketball because 
I, I actually stumbled upon it. This is back in 2000. So I broke my back November 19th of 2000 before, you know, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all the things. Mm. And I didn't know about the adaptive community or adaptive sports or anything. So there I am in my, you know, end of my first year in college. I hate everything about my life. And probably at the lowest point, I was just cutting through the gym. I was taking a shortcut at the university of New Mexico. And that's when I came across 10 people playing a scrimmage a wheelchair basketball game. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, jaw dropped. It kind of changed my life. Wow. It was that, it was that straightforward. It was that instant moment. eh? It really was. I mean, it took a couple of practices, you know, I, when I first came across it, I, I couldn't believe that I was seeing other people my age in a chair, <laughs> let alone, you know, the actual sport being so aggressive and even violent. And I, you know, being newly injured, everybody had been tiptoeing around me for the last two years, treating me so fragile. And I was a three sport athlete. I played fast pitch softball mainly. And I, I was into contact, you know, I didn't want, I was a tough chick, you know, I wanted to be treated that way. And so when I first saw wheelchair basketball and I just saw how aggressive it was, I just couldn't believe it. And it really changed my mind about what, you know, adaptive athletics really is. And, um, yeah, I mean, that same day I tried my first basketball chair. Of course, the people on the court saw me. And they saw potential right away, like I do when I see someone that looks athletic that's mm. in a chair. <laughs> I'm like, my ears perk up and I go, that's a recruit. I'm going to get her in, you know? <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that's that's what they did for me. And yeah, I tried it and, you know, immediately felt more athletic just sitting in a chair. And uh, it was tough. I mean, it wasn't like immediately I'm changed and I was all hopeful about life. I I was actually pretty frustrated with the fact that I had to, you know, push a chair and bounce a ball at the same time. And the hoop was way farther away because I was sitting and I didn't have my ankles and my knees and my hips to bend down and get mm. the ball to where I needed it to go. But, you know, it was really seeing those other folks that were, you know, in my same position, if not more paralyzed, um, doing the best they could with what they had and, that's when I didn't have any more excuses. That's when I was like, okay, this is it. You know, I have mm. to have to do the best I can with what I have. That's fantastic. See, I was lucky. I, I saw, you know, Josh Jewick's, um video of him skiing, you know, uh, mm -hmm. like about, I don't know, three weeks into my rehab. And that was yeah. that spark for me that gave me, gave me that hope, you know. But this was in 2012. So, yeah, you know, social media was – was reasonably prevalent at that point, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a shame for you. It took two years to find that spark, but, uh, but, you know, I guess you, uh, <laughs> you took full advantage of that spark and applied it, um, in, in magnificent fashion. Tell us about, uh, tell us about the, the next, I don't know, the next six months of, of, uh, your wheelchair basketball journey. How, what, what were some of the most difficult things about, um, getting in and, and getting good at that sport? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough sport. A lot of people don't know 
how involved it is as far as training. It takes a lot of work to get good at it, I think is what I'm saying. Mm. Um, well, I, you know, after I started playing, you know, one thing led to another and I learned about a program at the University of Arizona where they have an all women's team. And long story short, I ended up moving down to Tucson, Arizona, joining the team. And the first two weeks of wheelchair basketball training, we didn't touch a ball, but hmm. I ended up with more blisters on my hands than I had skin. I had, I had sprained my wrist without ever impacting it. It was just so much chair skill work that like, it's hard to explain, you know, it's, it's just, it's conditioning and, and getting so proficient at moving your chair, even, you know, half an inch was, is what makes a difference between a good defensive move and a foul, you know, so it's about dialing that in and, um, you know, conditioning your upper body and, it was tough and I loved every second of it. I, I remember being in the shower with all those blisters on my hands, trying to shampoo my hair and it hurt so bad. <laughs> and I was just like, yes, you know, I, I wanted to feel that again and it made me feel alive. And by the end of my first year at the university of Arizona, I actually was given the opportunity to try out for the U S Paralympic team. Wow. This was back. Yeah, it was. Actually, you don't muck around. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was actually the very last year that they had an open tryout, so anybody could try out. But after that, it was invitation only. So, had that been the case and it was invite only, I probably wouldn't have been there. If that mm -hmm. makes sense, because I was so raw. I had a lot of you know raw talent, but I didn't really. I wasn't on that level. But I ended up, I think it was very lucky of me, I ended up making that team in 2004, and I was an alternate, I was one of uh, 14 chosen to train for the Paralympic Games in Athens, Greece. As an alternate, of course, I didn't go to those games, which I didn't belong there, I was not good enough to go, but because I got to train with that team, I, I really was able to rise to that level pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, I just got better and like so fast. You had to rise to that level or you wouldn't be able to play with that team. So, well, so yeah. tell us a bit about, uh, tell us about funding this, you know, because, you know, we see this a lot in, in our community that, you know, equipment's expensive or, you know, you can't dedicate the time to, to do this, how did you manage to? How did you manage to dedicate so much time and and afford, um, you know, pay for all the things, the travel and the the equipment? Yeah, good question. I um, <clears throat> I was lucky to know about a grant program in the United States, and actually, it extends around the world. It's called the Challenged Athletes Foundation, and. I found the grant application, applied, and they bought me my first basketball chair. And uh, that really put me in a position to to make the team in the first place. I had my own chair while I was at the University of Arizona. And then, you know, once you're on the team on a Paralympic level in the United States, you typically are given a stipend, which doesn't cover everything, but it does cover your travel and your food and your lodging. So 
Awesome. You know, I was I was That's really cool. lucky to make the team my first year because I wouldn't have been able to kind of pull it off. You know, being a broke college kid, I was on food stamps and you know disability income, just trying to make ends meet. So. Mm. Well, well, you you seized an opportunity and and worked damn hard at it. So, you know you um, you know you, you made your own luck really. Tell us a little bit about college life and 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 dating. What's it like? What was your experience with that like? Well, that's funny you ask. I uh, I had a hard time dating, and I don't think it was really. It didn't have as much to do with my disability as it did my general upbringing, if that makes sense. So when I first went to the University of Arizona, there's this huge adaptive sports community there. Mm. They have a a disability resource center and they offer five different adaptive sports, including wheelchair tennis for men and women and basketball, track and field. I think at the time they even had goalball for visually impaired athletes. So there was kind of a huge community of people with disabilities. So that helped me feel immediately feel like, okay, I'm not alone in the world. And I could kind of see other people and how they were moving about the Mm. world they were in as well. And so that gave me a lot of confidence to kind of own my disability. Um, And then, you know, once on the Paralympic team, I met one of my best friends to this day. Her name is Patty Cisneros. She was the captain of that basketball team and also the captain of our team in Beijing. And she was like the first female that I met that was having a blast in college. She was going to the bars. She was like dating (laughs) all the guys. Like she had like five boyfriends. And so she, (laughs) she was really the person that like made me think, okay, you know, my disability is definitely going to set me into a different category or whatever. Like it's going to take a certain type of person to entertain the idea of dating me. You know, it's always somebody that has prior experience with a disability, like whether it's a friend or a family member, like they get it, you know, it's Mm -hmm. that drops the wall. right away. So I knew I had to meet somebody that was like definitely a little more open-minded, but I actually, uh, I didn't really like commit to dating anyone in college. Like I went on dates and I hung out with people, but I wasn't like full on dating anyone for a long time. And like I said, that had way more to do with my general upbringing and my sense of worthiness and all that. (laughs) If we we could go down a psych, you know, we could do the therapy thing if you want to go down that road or we could just leave it at that. (laughs) I had my own insecurities that weren't really associated with my disability, I don't think. True. I I get get that for sure. And at, you know, 17, 19, 20, you're still, man, I remember still trying to figure out all of my insecurities and, and, and how to have a relationship and all of those things. So, yeah, I mean, disability or not, you've still got a heap to learn about, um, about love and, and relationships. Um, yeah, I just thought I'd ask for for those listening that are, you know, looking to, looking to date or that, that may, may be struggling with that. I think at least in my experience, uh, I think it comes down to confidence in yourself and and actually mm-hmm. once you're happy within yourself, then my experience has always been that the right people start to come into your life. And and, and in some ways I think that disability can actually be a filter, can filter out those uh, the, the people that just really maybe aren't worthy of your, your love, right? Totally. 
I called it a shit filter <laughs> for people that just what they weren't on that level. You know, they, they were yeah. too superficial and that's, I mean, it's true. It really is, you know, when people can't look beyond your physical appearance to see what, what else is going on with you or, or those people that aren't even able to hold on an intelligent conversation. It's like, okay, moving on, you know, I think it saved me a lot of time and energy Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's not until, I don't know, until you really get a hold of your own sense of self, you know, and what you think love really looks like that I think dating happens and, you know, that's a different journey for every person. And I wouldn't say, I honestly don't think people are actually of adult age until they're like in their thirties anyways. That's like my personal opinion. Like 20s is meant to just figure it out, to try to find yourself, to to date on and off. But I really don't agree with getting married in your 20s. I think you need to spend some time figuring it out. And once you turn 30 and, you know, become a real adult, that's when things, at <laughs> least in my opinion, make sense to start committing. You know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. I, I uh, yeah, I totally know what you mean. I, I couldn't, I struggled to commit to a long-term relationship and, until I was in my 30s, you know, just, it was just seemed like it was too much to do and too many people to hang out with and, and right. uh, I, was, I was too self-centered really to, um, to, to give uh, wholeheartedly to somebody else, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I guess that's what, what comes with maturity is over time. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, so tell me, Elena, what what were some of the mistakes you made in those early years um, with with your approach to sport? Was there anything you'd change? Well, you know, I think I, I was very fortunate, like I said, to make the Paralympic team my first year playing at the university level, and I was grateful for that because it gave me the structure that I needed and the goals you know, both long-term and short-term to stay on track. Some of the mistakes I made were just being 20 years old in college and that would be drinking too much and, you know, waking up late and going to practice, you know, and kind of putting (laughs) half of myself out there because I spent the other half, you know, all night hanging out at parties or whatever. But, you know, Outside of all that, I consider it important that I had those experiences, but I also, you know, there's, you, we can always do better, I think is what I'm saying. And to answer your question, you know, those are some of the mistakes. Um, some of the things that really worked out for me well was, uh, you know, once I started playing on a Paralympic level, I did network to a great extent. Mm-hmm. And so back in my day in like the 2004 to 2008 area, that's, you know, right when the Paralympics were kind of shifting and, and getting way more coverage. And so some of our local sponsors, uh, you know, on a Paralympic level kind of saw potential in me, but I also reached out to them and started speaking. And that's when things really sort of took shape for me because I had a natural talent at speaking, but I needed a lot of practice. And so when I started in 2004, I started speaking for the Hartford. It's an insurance company. Mm. And just by, you know, trial by fire and experience alone, 
I was able to kind of formulate my message and whether it was like the 30 second elevator pitch or the longer 45 minute keynote, I was able to start kind of practicing what it felt like to, to brand myself, but also then to be able to help other people know what adaptive sports are and understand them in a way that I thought was appropriate. And so helping people come into my world, understand adaptive sport, and then be able to kind of work with that relationship has led to a million opportunities for me. That's such good advice, really. I've heard other entrepreneurs uh, say to me, you know, some of the best things I did was just say yes to go and speak to this group, you know, and Mm -hmm. in the audience, you might find one or two people that can offer you a connection or, uh, you know, a piece of advice or some mentorship. And really the more you put yourself out there and it's an uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? You know, getting in front of a crowd of people and, and in some cases just opening up your soul is, is a real vulnerable feeling and, and you feel kind of nervous and, and whatnot. But, um, but yeah, definitely it's, it's given me a great deal of opportunity as well. So what, what did a, what did the sponsorship look like? What did one of your first sort of sponsorship deals, if you like, um, look like? And how did you, you know, how did you structure that? How did you know what to, uh, what to ask for? Right. Well, one of my first offers really and opportunities, like I said, was with the Hartford insurance company. And that company was actually selling disability insurance uh, on a commercial level. So not pers- not to individuals, but mm. commercially. So what we did was travel around the country doing what we called were Paralympic experiences. So we would go to potential clients. We would, I would tell my story on behalf of the Hartford and sort of highlight, you know, the fact that disability is like the only demographic that doesn't discriminate. Anybody can join this minority group at any time. And (laughs) it's an interesting way of putting it. (laughs) Right. It's just like anybody could be a part of it. And God forbid it happened to you or a family member. Mm. Wouldn't you like to be a part of a company like the Hartford that believes in looking at what you can do as opposed to what you can't. And that's willing to adapt the workplace in order to get you back into life. Um, and you know, create opportunities for you to be a functioning member of society. And so while I was sort of selling, you know, disability insurance, I was also kind of preaching my truth as well, you know, so it didn't feel like I was, you know, you'd sold out. I wasn't selling out. I was like, Hey, this is, this is really important. And the, the, the Hartford is a founding partner of the Paralympics. And I really believe in that company and still do to this day because of what they stand for. And so that was really, it felt great because not all my sponsorships felt in alignment. You know what I mean? It did feel at times like I had to forgive my language, but like pour out my disability story, you know, Yeah. Yep. like sell it, you know? And so that was one of my first opportunities. I later, after the 2008 Paralympics in Beijing, we won gold there with the basketball team. I went on to Alpine Ski, and within two years, I was able to make the Paralympic team there and go to Vancouver in 2010, 
like Cinderella story, I ended up winning four medals and becoming the first female American to win gold in the summer and winter games. And so, yeah. yeah, (laughs) And, you know, kind of casually made history. But that's when doors really started to swing open with big sponsors. My first offer was from Nike and then Visa and the Hilton, AT&T, BMW. Things started rolling in after that. And I did actually negotiate my first contract with Nike. But shortly after that, I ended up getting an agent and that that was pretty important to have somebody advocating for me and helping mm-hmm. me negotiate those bigger, more confusing contracts and things like that. Was there any any downside to those sponsorships? Um, no. I mean, back in that day, it was actually really beneficial for a Paralympian, mainly because they weren't actually asking that much of me and they were supporting me financially, but also just being associated with that brand as a Paralympian was a really big deal. So Mm -hmm. it was before, you know, the partnerships have gotten equal. And now when an Olympic partner gets on board with the, you know, the U S Olympic committee, they immediately have to equally, you know, check the box with Paralympics. But back then it wasn't the case. So you know, for me to be associated with Nike and Visa, it was a really big deal. And people kind of knew about me because of that association. And, you know, it it did require that I made specific appearances. There were contractually obligated, you know, speaking appearances and autograph signings and things like that. But, you know, it wasn't more than I could handle for sure. And like I said, when I first started speaking, that's really when things shifted for me confidence wise. And I started to develop my own brand. So when I did sign with Nike and Visa, I was kind of established and I knew what it meant to show up in a professional environment shirt is ironed and all the rest of it and Mm. to give a a well thought out speech and you know that's that was not the case for everybody but also I was only you know 20 probably seven at the time no 26 I think so you know you're still in that age where you're trying to get it together as a professional but I really feel like some of the earlier speaking engagements prepared me to handle the bigger contracts that I signed. Did you have some training for speaking? Did you did you find anything that really worked for you? You know, I think for me personally, the best thing was just getting getting out there and practicing. I also did a fair amount of my own research. You know, I would I knew other Paralympians that were speakers, notably a guy named um, John Register. He's one of the most charismatic people I've ever met, and he really kind of helped me develop my own message. He wasn't a Paralympian when I met him, but he was a track and field athlete in Sydney. And uh, he's just, I mean, he's got a really special talent. He'll open up a speech with, like, uh, reciting an Edgar Allan Poe poem, you know, with all this power and passion. And, wow. you know, so he's got this real f- feel of soul about his speaking. So he inspired me. He also helped shape my story. Um, but it's really just been a, a matter of trial by fire and 
every audience that I've spoken to, I've kind of catered to my story to that audience, making sure, I mean, I've never given the same speech twice. I've told my accident story a billion times, but depending on the audience, I really kind of talk about what pertains to them. Yeah. I've heard that advice a number of times, you know, you have to, you have to think about what the audience um, might benefit from it and, and the context of their, you know, business or what they're, what they're doing. Right. Um, so yeah, totally. I, I quite often now don't, uh, don't go into a speaking engagement um, having prepared a great deal. I mean, I, like I, I researched the organization or the group Mm-hmm. I, was, I was speaking to a group of uh, ladies the other day from the Lions group, a Lioness group, and mm-hmm. and just the casual conversations around the room before my presentation gave me gave me some insights and enough to uh, to to address them with uh, you know with with a message that would resonate with them or what I thought would resonate with them, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I was just telling a friend of mine about that the other day. It's it's pretty stressful to go about it that that way, but it's not until the cocktail hour before a keynote when I understand very clearly who I'm speaking to that things start coming together. <laughs> so it's like, uh, you know, an hour in advance, I kind of really get it. You know, I'm prepared, but then it's like right before I feel like I have a clear message. Hey, so is there any, any sort of downsides to – you know, going in so deep to, to sport, like you did a professional sport and, you know, and the celebrity that comes with it. And if there was some sort of downsides to that, that you, uh, that you're aware of, how did, how did you deal with them or how do you deal with that? How do you deal with being in the public eye, you know, all the time? Right. Yeah. That's kind of what I was, that's kind of what, where I was going to go with that. I think anybody able-bodied or not that has a public persona, has an extra weight to carry, you know, it's like, it's like a different version of who you really are, not any less valid, but, you know, you put on that mask of this is my public persona. And I think it's, it was a really, um, it was a hard thing to embrace for me for a while, you know, that it was okay for me to be, the at-home version of me, you know, the public version of me, and then the athlete version of me, you know. So once I embraced all three and they could live kind of in harmony, I I felt like I wasn't being true to myself um, all the time because of the sort of the, the person I had to be in the public eye. So that was tough. And I, I you know, I, I just you know, didn't really feel like myself sometimes. Um, but you know, it was, it was really a matter of feeling like, okay, this is my job and this is what's making my sports possible. And, you know, I had multiple sports there for a while. So I think one of the hardest times for me was probably in 2012, I was training for basketball Um, but also summer at the same time I was training for alpine skiing. So we had the, the Paralympic games in London in 2012, but I was also, you know, fresh out of 2010 and was very involved at the alpine skiing level. Mm. And it was also about the time I got an agent 
agent and I started signing contracts. So I was traveling, I was speaking, and I was training for two sports. And not to mention that the two sports I was training for were very different. I mean, the cross training made sense, but I was I was constantly worried about getting injured while I was alpine skiing and not being able to play basketball. So mm. there was like the mental struggle of like, okay, I, I can't just focus on that and manifest an injury because of course it'll happen. So mm. I need to kind of like be sure that I'm doing the right thing. Am I training, you know, am I spreading myself too thin? The last thing I wanted to do was be mediocre at two sports instead of mastering one. So what did you decide to do? Well, I ended up pulling it off, to be honest, but it wasn't (laughs) the most successful time. We, it was a long story short as to why we got fourth in, in London, but it was the only Paralympics I didn't medal at. Or no, it wasn't, but we were meant to medal and favored to medal in 2012 and didn't. Um, And then, I, you know, I wasn't quite where I needed to be in 2014 either. Um, For other reasons, I had broken my shoulder uh, training, had to have a full rotator cuff replacement surgery. I was in, uh, yeah, I dislocated it backwards after hitting a boulder. And my shoulder was out of place for two hours. It was the worst pain. I mean, my breaking my back was like nothing compared to the shoulder injury. Um, Oh, wow. But all that to say, I just had a lot going on. And I wasn't really, I was pretty like spread thin. And with that, you know, my overall health and well-being kind of struggled. So during that time, I think... I just wasn't balanced and that affected my athletic pursuits. You know, I, I could imagine I wasn't my best self as a speaker, even though I'm sure I was learning and growing at that time as well, you know? So everything kind of, it was hard. It was a hard time. Yeah, definitely. So uh, what's a, what's a couple of uh, wheelchair What's a, what's a cool wheelchair trick that you're um, you're sort of most most proud of, or a bit of a, a wheelchair hack? Um, <laughs> what what would you what would you recommend people that use a manual wheelchair um, master or or try out? So I learned early on in my adaptive driving days that it really sucks to take apart your chair, like take one wheel off, take the other wheel off, put them in, mm-hmm. put the frame across your lap, etc. So one of the hacks that I came across early on was I bought a Toyota Tacoma and it had the extended cab. So not a double cab, but extended. And I was able to put the whole chair in behind me and close and reach and close both doors. So to be honest, that streamlined my life so much. Like (laughs) I did twice as many things on a daily basis as I would have if I had to take my chair apart. It does. It sucks. It takes, you know, the better part of a minute each time, right? So, right. Um, I mean, maybe a little quicker if you're going for it. And it, it impacts your shoulders too, I think. I've it noticed. Does. I've noticed that. It does. Yeah. I just found that on a daily basis, I was avoiding doing small errands because I didn't want to get my chair out. So, after I streamlined that, and you can get a minivan. I mean, if your ego is not going to get in the way, just get a minivan that has a sliding door, throw it in, throw it out. <laughs> it's so worth it. 
we had a minivan when we were over stateside. <laughs> we didn't really know what uh, that it wasn't cool, but um, oh. <laughs> but it but it worked. You know, we could sleep in the back of it, and we we uh, could could carry a bunch of stuff in it, which is cool. Totally, I'm I'm getting a minivan here soon. I'm lucky to be sponsored by Toyota, and now that I'm 29 weeks pregnant, getting up into my Tacoma's a little bit of a struggle. So. I'm going mom van. I call it the swagger wagon. <laughs> uh, that's so awesome. Well, I was going to say, well, you, you know, I'm presuming you haven't been pregnant before being paraplegic, so so maybe you've got nothing right. to compare it to. But what what's your journey been like so far? And and what are some yeah. what are some words of advice for for budding paraplegic mothers out there, um, mothers to be? What, what 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 would you say your experience has been like so far? Yeah, I uh, I think it's a lot like an able bodied person's experience as far as uh, physical misery goes. <laughs> uh, the first trimester is nauseous and you just don't feel good. And then second trimester, you know, you start showing, you, you're, start, you're starting to gain weight. And I found a lot of the differences for me was, was having a lot of back pain, you know, being in a chair for all these years. Um, is bad for anyone to be sitting that amount of time. But um, my hip pain started kicking in as well. So I think that's really the biggest difference physically. Um, I'm now about 25 pounds heavier than I was when I started. So transferring off the ground has gotten harder. Hmm. It's just essentially like you have a 25-pound weight across your stomach and you're trying to get off the ground. Um <laughs> So physically, those are kind of the things you could expect. Other than that, it's it's navigating the medical system and being able to advocate for yourself, knowing your body and being confident in what you think you can and can't do and being honest with what you can't or with what you don't know. And so, you know, automatically after I got pregnant, I'm 36, so that's technically high risk in the States. Once mm. you're over 35, it's a high risk pregnancy. Um, and then secondly, I'm a paraplegic. So that puts me into high risk. But other than that, I'm one of the more active people I know, and my body is in great shape. So when it came to the doctors wanting to give me all of this extra treatment, um, multiple ultrasounds and you know, sonograms and things like that, that are associated with high risk. I really had to advocate for myself knowing that I'm, I'm going down the natural childbirth path and I don't want all of these interventions happening just because, you know, I got pigeonholed into the high risk category. So for yeah, me, it was that's cool. really about, yeah, I did a lot of research on you know, different types of pregnancy experiences. And I chose what I felt was right for me. And then it was up to me to make the decision. Okay. I think, you know, I really wanted to go down the home birth water birth route, but honestly, I don't know what my legs are going to do in the middle of childbirth. I don't know how badly they're going to spasm. I'm not sure how effective my pushing is going to be. And so, you know, I decided I was going to just deliver at the hospital with two midwives and make it as natural as I possibly can with as 
the appropriate amount of medical intervention if needed. So that's kind of the balance I found. But, you know, if and when me and Roy get to have our second child, depending on how things go on the first, I really do want to have a water birth because I feel like I can move around better in the water. I'd love to have that natural experience, you know, but it's just a matter of I don't know how it's going to go. So Kirsten, my wife, spent the, the first part of her pregnancy in the bath but um, but we ran out of hot water, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so so a couple of hours sort of into it, um, and we were in Canada. We were in the Rockies in Canmore, and it was it was cold. Um, oh gosh! Uh, I mean, the house was was warm enough, but it, it was certainly right. certainly was an old house, and it was pretty drafty. And so um, we ran out of water, and it was never our intention to have a home birth, but uh, but the water just felt so good to her, and right. um, you know, I always relieved some of the. The pressures of gravity on the body and and mm-hmm. um, and so on, but um, yeah, it ended up being I think it was a 20, 28 hour ordeal. <laughs> you oh, know, it wow. was it was an yeah. epic epic pregnancy, and um, um, but anyway, I wish I wish you a, a speedy and um, and uh, straightforward um, delivery when the time Thank comes. You. So uh, on the on the subject of water, um, I'm curious. To know now, I mean, you're coming into summer there, and you spent the last couple of years getting into adaptive surfing um, mm-hmm. in a big way. And and uh, in typical uh, fashion for you, you you seem to be mastering that and and winning uh, winning competitions. Um, do you want to you know just tell me a little bit about that journey and where that uh, that sport is is heading and and the sort of developments there? Yeah, it's the best. <laughs> I, I love adaptive surfing of all the sports. And I think I've tried just about everything uh, adaptive wise and adaptive surfing has just got a special place in my heart. I think it's my connection with the water. Um, I actually got to try adaptive surfing while I was on vacation. I took my grandma out to Hawaii and just by chance, I came across a program called Access Surf. And they're based in Honolulu, and they're essentially an adaptive surfing program that takes people with disabilities out in the water and, you know, helps them figure it out. And for me, that looked like getting on a wave ski, which is where you sit upright, um, your feet are out in front of you, and then you strap in at your waist and you have a kayak paddle to paddle both out into the lineup, over the whitewash and out into the lineup, and then when the waves come, you paddle onto the wave with your kayak paddle. And, uh, you know, learning how to surf in the most, like, classic, you know, nostalgic place ever, Waikiki, Queensbreak. <laughs> um, it's where Duke Kahanamoko, like, basically birthed surfing, you know. So the water is about 80 degrees and it clears day. And I don't know. It, it all came together for me. I like to say it ruined my life. <laughs> and <laughs> after learning how to surf, I was like, oh man, I got to, I got to do this all the time. And so at the time I was living in Colorado, I basically devised a plan to move out to California in order to keep my job as a Paralympian. I picked up my third sport of sprint kayak, which side note is the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> I was like, well, let me try my hand at, you know, endurance sports. And turns out I'm just not an endurance sport athlete. <laughs> Are you talking about just the cardiovascular pain of um, and, yeah. and, and muscular pain of associated with, um, you know, intense um, 
you know, that sort of intensity. Yes. And I know it, that sprint is in the name, but we trained endurance to prepare for the 200 meter sprint. So, I mean, we were on the water for hours on end, um, doing intervals and things like that. And, you know, for, for real true endurance athletes, they, they get this, like what they call runner's high, Mm. you know, where they just get that second wind and they put it into sixth gear and, everything's great. It just never clicked for me because, you know, of all the training I've done in wheelchair (laughs) basketball and alpine skiing, I mean, I just, it was so hard for me. So, but I really wanted to, I set that goal of going to Rio in 2016 and I wanted to do as much as I could for the sport being its debut at that Paralympic games. So I stuck with it and Long story short, I got put into a category of me and only single-leg amputees, you know, how the classification Mm. system works. And I didn't really have a shot at winning anything in those games. But one of the blessings of that experience was I really had to focus on the process and what it meant to show up every day and to do my best at something I knew I wasn't going to win at. And that was a real blessing because I, you know, being so successful in my other sports, I had to focus on the process and really enjoying what that meant to be on the water at 6 a.m., you know, Mm -hmm. every day. But with that, I, I, so I devised this plan. If I got into sprint kayak, I could, you know, keep my position on the Paralympic team, pay the bills, and then also surf as a cross trainer. And it totally worked. It was just a whole lot of work. <laughs> cunning plan, cunning plan. Yeah, a whole lot of pain to go to uh, to, to be a surfing bum essentially, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> you could have just got yourself a combi and, um, you know, and yep. sold up and uh, lived in a van for a bit. But, no, that's smart. You said you set yourself this goal. Do you have a Do you have a process for goal setting? Do you write things down? Do you um, you know lay out a timeline of things you want to achieve? What, talk us through your process. Yeah, I mean, you know, it just depends on the sport. But there was all there was always that larger goal, whether it was four years from the time that I set it to get to the Paralympics or if it was a two-year goal of getting to world championships, whatever that long-term goal is. And then within that, I mean, it got down to weekly goals of training and making gains to like daily goals of like, here's what what I weigh now and what I'm hoping to weigh by the end of the week, um, et cetera. Well, that pertains to sprint kayak because it it helped to be a lot leaner at that with that sport, but that wasn't really the case with alpine skiing. It actually benefited me to be a little on the heavier side. I um, see. I see. So yeah, like a, like a road cyclist in a tour de France, for example, they're going to be super lean powder weight ratio has to be just spot on, but alpine skiing, a little bit of extra weight gives you that momentum and, and extra, um, extra speed, I guess, overall. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, back to your question, you know, goal setting, it really, it depends on the sport and this and the season that I'm in. If I'm, you know, cross training or in season, it was just really about setting a weekly goal and making sure I, I achieved that. Cause you know, if you try to climb (laughs) a huge mountain all in one go, it's going to be very Mm. difficult, if not impossible. So, you know, setting the goal of going to the Paralympics is one thing, but 
you break it down week by week and it's way more achievable. Yeah, totally. Less overwhelming, isn't it, when you when you chunk it down? Right. So, uh, Elena, you um, you're now pregnant, so I take it you haven't you haven't been surfing for some time. How are you coping psychologically with that? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saying coping, because that's exactly what I've had to do. You know, I'm so dependent on being active for my overall health and well being, like my mental health, mm. and. It's been difficult being sidelined, you know, not only can I not do the things that I used to do for exercise, like if I'm honest, I kind of hate going to the gym now. I spent years in the gym training. Mm. So my outlet was skiing and surfing. And now that I can't do either of those, I have to get back in the gym. And, you know, on top of that, I have to get pretty creative with what I can do and can't, I can't really bend over. That's like a hard thing. So everything's, you know, at my shoulder height or above and just figuring out what that looks like and training because I want to, not because I'm training for anything specific. Uh, yeah, it's been difficult. I, you know, more than anything, I just want to get in the water in the ocean and I'm actually going to do that later this month. I'm going to head down, you know, Roy, my boyfriend started the high fives foundation. We're going to have an adaptive surfing camp on the 18th of this month. So we'll get to go down there. I won't be shredding waves, but I will totally get in the water and that's just going to be amazing. <laughs> oh yeah. That'd be so yeah. good. Yeah. Oh, well, I look forward to, uh, I look forward to seeing that on social media. You, you've got, um, you know, you, you spread a, a tremendous amount of content on social media. What's, uh, what's that like for you? That's such a great question too, because it's, you know, everybody's got a different relationship with social media and how it either runs their life or they run it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, since I've been pregnant, I've really gotten more recluse about it. It's not been the first thing that I want to do is share everything about my personal life. And that's not because I'm not comfortable. It just hasn't been. It's almost like a food aversion that you have when you're pregnant. I just, I've been like, not <laughs> that into it. You know, I just don't want to do that. And uh, I think it's more about me just looking within as a mom to be. But, you know, when I was at the height of my career in both wheelchair basketball and alpine skiing, it's very much a tool that athletes use as free advertising brands want to see their, you know, product in front of as many eyes as possible. And so the more followers you have, the more brands you're going to get that want to give you more money, you know, it's this whole mm. cycle. And so now that I'm not really doing that hustle, it's just about what I really want to share and when, and that feels pretty good. I, you know, I feel like I'm authentic and um, the people that follow me are all authentic followers, you know, people that I've gained. I don't have that many followers, but the ones that I do are all people that I think know me or a lot of them don't, but like, there's no way that I just had all these rando people following me, you know? So, <laughs> um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, you haven't paid for them. <laughs> it was just Yeah. I've never paid for any followers. I don't subscribe to like that being a uh, part of my worth you know well I think it's a testament to the to the to the value that your content is providing other people and and mm -hmm. uh, everybody 
everybody will get something different out of another person's social profile. You know, uh, they, they may find it entertaining. They may find it, uh, you know, gives them useful information. It may find that it gives them some hope, a uh, sense mm-hmm. of community, um, you know, all these things and, and all, all of the above. And so, you know, I suppose as long as, um, as you're using your social media in, a, in an authentic way and, and, um, you know, it can be a tool for good, can't it? You know, can can definitely right. help help people out. Yeah, and that's that's what really has motivated me from the beginning uh, as a speaker and on social. It's like, who needs to hear this? You know, and when it comes to being vulnerable and putting yourself out there, it it takes me having to check in with my why, you know, to really want to do it because other. Otherwise, I'd just do my own thing and, you know, yeah. not care about who sees it. But, you know, there's there's a lot of people that need to be encouraged by it, I think. And that's what motivates me. Hey, Elena, um, is there anything that frightens you? And, and if, you, if there is something that frightens you, how do you, um, how do you cope with that? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> You know, I had this interesting relationship with fear uh, prior to becoming pregnant and having a little baby in my belly. I almost didn't really acknowledge its presence ever. So it takes a certain, I guess, numbness to fear to be able to push out of a start gate in a downhill Paralympic race and Mm -hmm. go 70 miles per hour down a mountain on a monoski, right? Mm. So if you've ever seen the movie, uh, it's on Netflix now called Free Solo. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. You watch that and you see that his brain chemistry is actually not that um, different than like a serial killer. <laughs> and the, the reason is that he's kind of cut off his relationship with fear. And that was out of necessity to be able to accomplish the things he does as a climber. And, um, that was kind of, I, I really related to that movie, not to the extent that I would climb a 3000 foot, you know, face of a mountain without ropes, but it, (laughs) it took me having to kind of really separate myself from the consequence and the fear of getting injured in order to perform as an alpine ski racer or even as a surfer, you know, the ocean is a big, huge, powerful thing. And so um, how do you, how do you do that? How do you, uh, how do you not focus on the fear or, or how do you stop the fear from paralyzing you? Excuse the pun, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. How, how does one do that? You know, Honestly, I think part part of it's my nature. I was kind of a born risk taker, somebody that really loves to see where the edge is. Some people are just not born that way. But um, I think also it was important for me to, to acknowledge it and then set it aside. So it felt like I was actively dealing with fear. I was just choosing not to deal, like to experience it you know Mm. what I mean so I it wasn't so much that I just frivolously like threw myself down a mountain 
I understood what consequences were at stake. I got it. But I actively and intentionally set it aside because I was confident enough in my skill set to know that I could perform. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, there's a difference between courage and chaos. And anybody can chaotically kind of throw themselves into whatever. But when you look at a huge, you know, maybe six to eight foot set of waves and you actively decide, okay, this is bigger than me. It's more powerful than me but I'm confident in the strength that I have in my body and the understanding I have of the ocean to navigate this water. You know, Mm. I'm able to do this. I feel confident. And then you set it aside that fear and Mm. you go forward. So it's, it's important to actively deal with it. And then when the wave's totally pounding you and you're struggling for air (laughs) and then you do come up for air, you kind of realize, well, actually, um, I, I got through that. That that, that wasn't right. too bad. Uh, oh, and here comes the next wave. I better take another breath and dive <laughs> dive under that yeah. one. <laughs> I love it. I love surfing too. Although I, I've got an incredibly busy, busy life with entrepreneurship and my family. That um, you know, surfing is a is a good half day affair. By the time you get everything loaded up, get changed into your wetsuit, drag yourself mm-hmm. into the water, and go for a surf. Um, and I. Um, I haven't mastered the role like um, like our good good Brazilian friend who um, Philippe who uh, who can master the role, but that's on my bucket list for uh, for one of these days. To that, uh, that's on my bucket list as well, sir. <laughs> yeah, that would be so amazing to be able to do that. Um, mm-hmm. That would that would drastically improve my surfing for sure, mm-hmm. and the and the places I'd feel confident to surf at. Right. Same. Um, yeah. Hey, so Elena, as, as we uh, sort of wrap this up, where can people, um, where can people, f- where, where are you, where do you hang out most on online? And, um, and and maybe the last sort of parting piece of advice to to um, to the disabled community out there, particularly wheelchair users and and female wheelchair users, what advice would you have? Yeah, so I am easily found on Instagram at Elena the Jane and I can also be found on Facebook under Elena Nichols. Uh, most of that's just all connected. So I would go to Instagram first and, you know, some advice I have for other female, you know, general women with disabilities. Um, (sighs) I would say, you know, more than anything, be true to yourself, you know, for a long time, I really didn't understand who I was. And I was acting like I felt like I should. Mm. And it's, and it's, I think it's a, you know, coming of age type of life story where when you finally get to know who you are, you are able to kind of sit in your truth. And I, I'm more now than ever am so proud of who I am as a woman with a disability and the challenges that I've overcome associated with that. Um, you know, I look back at my 17, 18, 19 year old self, and I just saw so much shame in her. And, Mm. you know, she was so, uh, she was so ashamed of who she was because of her disability. And it, it takes having all of the life experiences that I have, you know, to 
own and embrace it. But I don't know. I think it's really important to give yourself credit for what you've done, what you've experienced and not let society's, you know, view of you define who you are. So that um, is, that is beautiful. Um, I couldn't agree more with that advice. Um, totally find out what lights your fire and, um, and do more of that regardless of what anybody else says to you. And, and what will happen is you'll find, you'll find your tribe out there, and, and we may be part of that tribe, but you'll find your tribe that do um, embrace you for your differences, you know, and for, you know, and for who you are. So um, great, great advice. And, Elena, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. I, I wish you all the very best in the next couple of months and the years ahead, and I will be stateside in the next year, so I'd love to uh, come and see you and Roy and say good day face-to-face. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Um, maybe, yes. maybe catch a wave with you and um, – and and just yeah, just just connect. Um, and I said to Roy, if either of you are ever in New Zealand, there's always always a place to stay here in Christchurch in our home, and um, and be sure to be able to link you up with some uh, some cool folks down this way too. Amazing, New Zealand. If you know, and I'm so grateful I've gotten to travel a fair amount. New Zealand's my number one spot. I love 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 those little islands down there. So. Uh, don't be surprised if we do show up and, uh, thanks so much for doing what you do with this podcast. I think it's really important and I appreciate you having me on today. No sweat. No, absolute pleasure. All right, Elena, love to Roy and, uh, and we'll catch up real soon. Sounds great. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, go to adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind-the-scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.